Okay, we are going to be in Judges 19, and this time uh, we will pick it up where we left off last week in verse 29 of chapter 19. <clears throat> and just a forewarning, uh, we have about 40-ish verses to uh, just a little bit more than like 49, 50 verses to go through tonight uh, in the story, so prepare yourself for that. Um, and, but I promise you it's a very lively read, So, um, as, as really the last few chapters in Judges are. Um, and I'll pick up, uh, starting again in verse 29 of Judges 19. And when he entered his house, he took a knife, and taking hold of his concubine, he divided her limb by limb into twelve pieces, and sent her throughout all the territory of Israel. And all who saw it said, Such a thing has never happened or been seen from the day that the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, until this day, consider it, take counsel, and speak. Then all the people of Israel came out from Dan to Beersheba, including the land of Gilead, and the congregation assembled as one man to the Lord at Mizpah. And the chiefs of all the people of all the tribes of Israel presented themselves in the assembly of the people of God, 400,000 men on foot that drew the sword. Now the people of Benjamin heard that the people of Israel had gone up to Mizpah, and the people of Israel said, Tell us, how did this evil happen? And the Levite, the husband of the woman who was murdered, answered and said, I came to Gibeah, that belongs to Benjamin and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah rose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me and they violated my concubine and she is dead. So I took hold of my concubine and I cut her into pieces and sent her throughout all the country of the inheritance of Israel. For they have committed an abomination and an outrage in Israel. Behold, you people of Israel, all of you, give your advice and counsel here. And all the people arose as one man saying, none of us will go to his tent and none of us will return to his house. But now this is what we will do in Gibeah. We will go up against it by lot and we will take 10 men of a hundred throughout all the tribes of Israel and a hundred of a thousand and a thousand of 10,000 to bring provisions for the people that when they come, they may repay Gibeah of Benjamin for all the outrage they have committed in Israel. So all of the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. All the tribes of Israel sent men throughout all the tribe of Benjamin, saying, what is this evil that has taken place among you? Now therefore give up the men, the worthless fellows in Gibeah, that we may put them to death and purge evil from Israel. But the Benjamites would not listen to the voice of their brothers, the people of Israel. Then the people of Benjamin came together out of the cities to Gibeah to go out to battle against the people of Israel. And the people of Benjamin mustered out of their cities on that day 26,000 men who drew the sword, besides the inhabitants of Gibeah, who mustered 700 chosen men. Among all these were 700 chosen men who were left-handed, everyone who could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And the men of Israel, apart from Benjamin, mustered 400,000 men who drew the sword, all these were men of war. The people of Israel arose and went up to Bethel to inquire of God, who shall go up first for us against the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Judah shall go up first. Then the people of Israel rose in the morning and encamped against Gibeah. And the men of Israel went out to fight against Benjamin. And the people of Israel drew up the battle line against them at Gibeah. Then the people of Benjamin came out of Gibeah and destroyed on that day 22,000 men of the Israelites. But the people, the men of Israel, took courage and again formed the battle line in the same place where they had formed it on the first day. 
And the people of Israel went up and wept before the Lord until the evening. And they inquired of the Lord, Shall we again draw near to fight against our brothers, the people of Benjamin? And the Lord said, Go up against them. So the people of Israel came near against the people of Benjamin the second day. And, the, and Benjamin went against them out of Gibeah the second day and destroyed 18,000 men of the people of Israel. All these were men who drew the sword. Then all the people of Israel, the whole army, went up and came to Bethel and wept. They sat there before the Lord and fasted that day until evening and offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And the people of Israel inquired of the Lord, for the Ark of the Covenant of God was there in those days. And Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, son of Aaron, ministered before it in those days, saying, Shall we go out once more to battle against our brothers, the people of Benjamin, or shall we cease? And the Lord said, Go up, for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. So Israel set men in ambush around Gibeah, and the people of Israel went up against the people of Benjamin on the third day and set themselves in array against Gibeah as at other times. And the people of Benjamin went out against the people and were drawn away from the city. And as at other times, they began to strike and kill some of the men in the highways, one of which goes up to Bethel and the other to Gibeah, and in the open country, about 30 men of Israel. And the people of Benjamin said, They are routed before us as at first. But the people of Israel said, Let us flee and draw them away from the city to the highways. And all the men of Israel rose up out of their place and set themselves in array at Baal Tamar. And the men of Israel who were in ambush rushed out of their place from Marah Gibeah. And there came against Gibeah 10,000 chosen men out of all Israel. And the battle was hard, but the Benjamites did not know that disaster was close upon them. And the Lord defeated Benjamin before Israel. And the people of Israel destroyed 25 1,100 men of Benjamin that day. All these were men who drew the sword. So the people of Benjamin saw they were defeated. The men of Israel gave ground to Benjamin because they trusted the men in ambush whom they had set against Gibeah. Then the men in ambush hurried and rushed against Gibeah. The men in ambush moved out and struck all the city with the edge of the sword. Now the appointed signal between the men of Israel and the main ambush was that when they had made a great cloud of smoke rise up in the city, the men of Israel should turn in battle. Now Benjamin had begun to strike and kill about 30 men of Israel, and they said, Surely they are defeated before us as in the first battle. But when the signal began to rise out of the city in a column of smoke, the Benjamites looked behind them, and behold, the whole city went up in smoke to heaven. Then the men of Israel turned, and the men of Benjamin were dismayed, for they saw that disaster was close upon them. Therefore they turned their backs before the men of Israel in the direction of the wilderness, but the battle overtook them. And those who came out of the cities were destroying them in their midst. Surrounding the Benjamites, they pursued them and trod them down from Noha as far opposite as Gibeah on the east. 18,000 men of Benjamin fell, all of them men of valor. And they turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimnon. 5,000 men of them were cut down in the highways, and they were pushed hard to Gidom, and 2,000 men of them were struck down. So all who fell that day of Benjamin were 25,000 men who drew the sword, all of them men of valor. But 600 men turned and fled towards the wilderness to the rock of Rimnon and remained at the rock of Rimnon four months. And the men of Israel turned back against the people of Benjamin and struck them with the edge of the sword, the city, men and beasts, and all that they found. And all the towns that they found, they set on fire. So that is uh, quite a long narrative, but 
you'll notice it's, it's one single narrative. It kind of all happens in the span of a couple of days. Um, and it, it picks up off where we left off in uh, chapter 19 last week. And if you want, let's say, one main unifying theme or idea, uh, this, this is a detailed account about God's judgment poured out. And you see that kind of all over the text, uh, particularly in the messiness of it, in the kind of finality of the judgment. Um, but we'll pick it apart as we go through it. Uh, the first thing to take note of as we're, as we're looking at the text is it, it carries or it picks up with a story already in progress. So the first part of that story is that there's this Levite. He has a concubine. Uh, they stay in this city that they think is a friendly city. Uh, it's supposed to be Israelites, so people who would take care of them. It turns out in the middle of the night that this is not a friendly city because they're beating on the door and they want to uh, take and violate the Levite. And so the Levite makes a, um, a tactical decision to throw his concubine out to the group instead. Uh, we've discussed that you know, at length last week. Uh, so she dies in the attack then, and his life is spared. Then he essentially gets up the next day, takes her body, takes it back to his hometown, and that's where we picked up the narrative this week. And that narrative picks up in verse 29 when he gets home to where he's actually from because he was traveling during this time. When he gets home to where he's actually from, he takes a knife and he essentially cuts her into 12 different pieces, uh, essentially cuts her apart. It says limb by limb. And he sends all of her different body parts to the various tribes of Israel essentially as like a declaration of the atrocity. And you'll notice that there's a message it seems like is carried with them. So it's not like he's just, you know, he's not just mailing a package to these different tribes. Likely he has a messenger or servant carrying these uh, parcels to the different tribes. And these servants who are carrying the message uh, essentially uh, say uh, they have this consider, uh, and that's at the end of verse 30, consider it, take counsel and speak. So there's this kind of, you've seen what's happened, you've heard what's happened, now consider, take counsel, and speak. And so in, in sending this message out, he's essentially trying to stir Israel up to action. And you'll notice Israel does take action. All of Israel assembles, and that is kind of where chapter 20 starts off. Chapter 20 is this unifying theme of all Israel gathered together, and it says three different times in the text as one man. Uh, Israel's gathered, uh, we're told, the congregation assembled as one man in verse uh, 1 of chapter 20. We're told in verse 8 of chapter 20, and all the people arose as one man. And verse 11, so all the men of Israel gathered against the city, united as one man. So the idea of this unity is a theme that we I kind of breadcrumbed around in Judges. When Israel is unified, whatever's going to take place next is likely something that's going to be a favorable outcome. They're going to go into battle. If they're unified, it's likely going to be a victory. This is laid, the, the groundwork for this is laid in chapter one of Judges when uh, Judah and Simeon and the tribes of Israel are portrayed as one group going into the promised land and conquering the peoples. Now, the, though the tragedy of it is they're uniting not against the Canaanite peoples, not against the Philistines. They're uniting now against one of their own tribes, the Benjamites, and justice needs to be done. The, the evil needs to be purged from Israel. And so all of the tribe gathers together. And the first interesting detail of the text, remember, don't trust the characters, trust the narrator. Uh, the first giveaway of that is uh, the Levite's account of what took place in Gibeah. And you'll see this in verse 4 of chapter 20. The Levite says, I came to Gibeah that belongs to Benjamin, I and my concubine, to spend the night. And the leaders of Gibeah arose against me and surrounded the house against me by night. They meant to kill me, and notice this, and they violated my concubine and she is dead. Now, the glaring omission from that testimony 
is the role that the Levite played in throwing his concubine out to the crowd. The fact that he essentially actively put her to death by casting her into the crowd. So he's omitting that statement. Now that doesn't mean that we should say, well, which way did the events take place, right? The narrator has told us what actually took place. The Levite is lying for his own convenience so that justice and the wrath of Israel stirred up is gonna be deflected away from him and fully targeted towards Gibeah. And so it seems that he gets away with this, right? Because he kind of drops off of the story and now all of Israel is unified against uh, the people in, in Gibeah. And then a couple of things take place. The first is that Israel offers essentially to extradite the wicked men. If Gibeah would give these people over, if Benjamin would give these people over, then, then no, no harm, no foul. We'll put them to death for their crimes and Benjamin will be spared. Benjamin, however, rejects this, uh, this offer. They say, we're not gonna give our own up. And so they essentially assemble to war against Israel. And that's when uh, the battle lines get drawn. In verse 15, uh, we're told that it's 26,000 men uh, who are from Benjamin. And there's a separate group, not included in the 26,000, a separate group of about 700, which are kind of like elite soldiers. Uh, they're this group of chosen men that are left-handed and they can sling a stone at a hair and not even miss. So there's this special group of fighters in Benjamin. And then Israel, their numbers is 400,000 men, all who draw the sword. And so now you have the two tribes, Benjamin and essentially all the rest of the 12 tribes of Israel. And now they're doing war against one another. Benjamin is united against Israel. Israel is united against Benjamin. They're both kind of in this battle against one another. And then you have this interesting kind of series of cycles that's present in the text. And the series of cycles is interesting because they seek the will of God, they go to battle, and then in the first two instances, they lose that fight pretty badly. So the first time Israel goes against Benjamin, right? And if you think about how the narrative is unfolding, Israel's doing something correct. Benjamin has committed the crime. So we shouldn't suppose that God is pouring out his wrath on Israel in this case, right? Israel seem, seemingly is acting in all accords how they're supposed to be acting. They go seek God's will. Um, the Lord says Judah shall go up first. Now this is the narrator telling us this. This is not like when the Levite uh, was talking to uh, the people earlier in chapter 17 in Judges, and he says, oh, the Lord blesses you, go into battle. That's the, the, the dialogue of the Levite in that case. In this, time, in this case, it's the narrator who's telling us, God says, it's okay, go and fight. And Judah should go first. Now this should draw to mind that same account in Judges chapter one, where Judah and Simeon are going together and Judah's the one who goes first into battle. So they're kind of sandwiching the text together, the, the author of Judges is. And so the first time they go, they, they battle Benjamin and 22,000 Israelite men die, not from Benjamin, from, from Israel. So 400,000 minus 22,000, that's what's left at the end of day one. So they, they weep, they mourn, they go back to Bethel uh, and then they seek the will of the Lord again at the end of the first day. And when they seek the will of the Lord, and this is in verse uh, 23, the Lord says again, go up against them. So the will of the Lord again is for them to go to battle. They go day two, this time 18,000 Israelites die, not quite as big of a loss as 22,000, still a, a massive loss, considering you're only fighting 26,000 people. We're not told about any losses from, from the group of Benjamin. And then, it's, and then we're told that now in verse 26, all the people of Israel, the whole army goes up to Bethel, they weep, they sit there before the Lord, they fast all that day until evening, they offer burnt offerings and peace offerings, and they're seeking the will of God. And they once again inquire of God. And this time the narrator gives us a detail, which has, has been true the whole time, but it's a detail that's gonna clarify the rest of the events. He tells us the way that they're seeking the will of God. So they're seeking the will of God. 
the, through the Ark of the Covenant of God, which is located in Bethel, and through Phinehas, the high priest. Now, earlier in Judges, in 1718, the Levites, when they're discerning the will of God, are doing so improperly because only the high priest is able to go before God with the Urim and the Thummim and discern his will. So what the narrator doesn't want us to pick up is that Israel is seeking God's will improperly. That's why they're getting bad answers. So that's why they're dying in battle. He's telling us they're doing this with where the Ark of the Covenant is located through the high priest at the time and getting positive affirmation to go into battle. So we'll resolve that in a second. Why do they keep losing? But this time we're told they go into battle and this time not only go against them, uh, we're told in verse uh, 28, right at the end, the Lord says, go up for tomorrow I will give them into your hand. And then this third day of battle is told to us, it's kind of confusing. You might've picked up that there's a bunch of repetitive elements. It's told to us first in summary form and then in a much more detailed account the second time. So the summary form is verse 29 all the way through to verse 36. That's the summary of the battle. Uh, they, they essentially draw the people of Benjamin out. They make it look like Benjamin's winning. So Benjamin leaves their city. They get further away from the city. Then another group routes around behind Benjamin, sacks the city. When the city is on fire, that's the signal for these, this group of Israelites to turn around and fight Benjamin. And in this, in this way, Benjamin loses a bunch of people, 25,100 in a single day. Then we're told the detailed account of those events, exactly how all that unfolded. We're told about the people of Benjamin losing in the fight and how they fled and lost people along the way in their flight. So it's the same account twice. One's just like a more detailed variation of events. And there's some, just so you know, if you try to do the math on this, there is some textual issues with figuring out exactly how many Benjamites died. Because the summary account says 25,100. Then the detailed account, if you try to add up the individual numbers, it doesn't quite come out to the same. It's still, a, it's still basically the majority, but this is because the original manuscripts that we have for these texts are a little bit difficult to understand in the number section. Numbers are hard to reconstruct. It's not like sentences where you can put together the sentence because you've missed a word, but you know a word goes there. Numbers are a little bit harder, but in this case, it doesn't really change any of the text. It doesn't change any of the story. It doesn't change any of the theme of what's going on. Benjamin lost big, and essentially, 600 Benjamites are left at the end of this battle, which is basically the entire tribe is gone, and now there's these 600 men left. And that becomes a very big issue, but we'll deal with that one uh, next week in chapter 21. For this week, uh, just focusing really on the main thrust of kind of all of what's happening here, I mentioned at the beginning, this is God's judgment poured out on Israel. And the first thing uh, to notice, or I, I think the biggest problem to notice, is if this is God's judgment poured out on Benjamin, why is it that Benjamin wins the first two times and then loses the third time? Why, why do so many Israelites die in the process of God's judgment being unfolded, right? So when Moses, for example, when he is dealing with Israelites that are a problem to him, uh, sometimes the earth just swallows them whole. Uh, sometimes they just die in a plague, but no one actually uh, is dying. Uh, no one from the good side usually dies in the exacting of God's justice. So why is it in this case that Israelites are dying in the process of God pouring out his judgment on Benjamin? And for that, there is not really a good answer in the text. And the reason I say that is because there's, there's two possible resolutions. One thing we could say is, oh, well, God is judging Israel and Benjamin at the same time. Israel loses the first two times, the third time he judges Benjamin. But that, I think, is a little bit of speculation from the text, partially because if you look at the time period, the chronology of when this is happening, this is still really early in the period of Judges. So we're not to understand this as all of Israel has kind of gone crazy and God is kind of pouring out his wrath on them in general for all of what's happened in Judges because most of those things haven't happened yet. 
if you, if you look at the chronology, it's, it's put at the end of the book, but we're told that the time period is in the time that Phinehas is the high priest. So that puts us relatively early in the period of Judges, you, really within the first generation. So still when the people were faithful is, is when we're at right now. So there's this one group of Israelites that's unfaithful. The rest of Israel is still, by and large, doing what they were supposed to do. So we, can't, we would have to speculate heavily to say that. The other solution uh, for this problem in the text is not that this is God's wrath poured out on Israel, because there's no clear sin of Israel. There's not really a clear reason why God would pour his wrath out on them. Um, it's simply that uh, in, the, in the working out of God's judgment, there is a great mystery to how he decides to exact his wrath on Benjamin. Now, this could seem frustrating to us, um, but look at the text at how closely Israel follows the will of God. And I think that that is really the best answer to this question. So the first thing to take note of is the people arise. This is in verse 18 of chapter 20. The people arise, they go to Bethel and notice they inquire of God. Now, this is something that is commendable. They go to the place they're supposed to go. They ask God, should we do this thing? And God not only says yes, but also says Judah shall go first. So God is the one giving instructions to the people of Israel to tell them what to do. They lose that first fight. Now, notice what's interesting. Israel doesn't despair and say, we shouldn't listen to God anymore. Let's just figure this out on our own. Israel goes back, same thing, right before God again, this time asking again, and the Lord says again, go up against them. And they believe God. They go back into battle. They lose 18,000 people this time. And now you would say, surely Israel should give up with Yahweh. He's lying to them, whatever else and they should just deal with this problem on their own. Instead, they go back to Bethel. Now they worship God. They give him burnt offerings and, and all kinds of worship and praise, fast, praying, seeking his will. And then he says this time, not only, will I, not only should you go up, but this time I will give them into your hands. It's, it's God essentially finally giving them uh, an answer of when this victory will take place. And then they win, and they win really big uh, that third day. And so in every, in every instance, Israel's seeking God's will. They're getting confirmation of what God is telling them to do. And then God is working out his judgment in, in a rather messy kind of way. But if you think about that, uh, just because there's plenty of setbacks for Israel doesn't mean we should say this is not God's will, they're outside of God's will. Because if that was the case, we would have to say, well, when Jesus tells us in Matthew 28 that go into all the world and make disciples, that the first time we meet resistance on that mission, we should stop because this is not God's will. Hey, people are dying left and right. There's apostles dropping like flies. Maybe this isn't what we were supposed to do the whole time. Maybe we should go back, get a different answer, and do it this way. But instead, the will of God is usually worked out through setbacks in this kind of messy nature. And this is all providential mystery of God. Uh, if Jesus' promise of the Great Commission was a promise of guaranteed 100% success all the time, the, the history of the church would look very different than it does. But what we don't say is we don't look at the church history and say Jesus must have been lying in Matthew 18. We don't say that they were, the apostles are outside of his will when they share the gospel and they're killed for it. Instead, what we say is God's providence is really messy as the gospel goes forth and the church expands. So, and, and, and two things are true in both of these accounts. There's not, I'm just not paralleling them for no reason. Both of them are true in that we get the will of God directly from his mouth, what he wants them to do. And it's a, it's, it's a will that they're sure of. So they know this is what God's saying. They do it. They lose, lose, and then they win big. And the apostles kind of follow that same pattern in the book of Acts. They know this is God's will. They do it. A bunch of them get killed. Sometimes they win. Sometimes they lose. And eventually, even the writers of the New Testament die. But 
God's will actually ends up winning out in the long term, and the church expands, the church grows. And I would argue that uh, it's, that's not an application that should be too far removed from us today, because I think sometimes one of the reasons we can get frustrated with our culture and the Christian and the world's engagement uh, with one another is we think, oh, there's so many setbacks, we're losing the battle, the, the, the culture's going crazy, surely the church's mission is failing, we should just give up because there's all these setbacks. We should just kind of expect things are just going to go this way. But the kingdom of God has always been progressing through these myriad of setbacks. And that's true in the story in Judges. I think that's also true throughout church history, even in the New Testament and uh, even in today. And there's, by the way, much more in this text to unpack. There's many more things that could be said. But if you're asking what I think the main through line is, God's judgment poured out and his providence kind of undergirding all of that in this kind of strange, mysterious event um, and I, I warned you last time, uh, in Judges 19, 20, 21, there's not really any heroes. And it seems like at this point, Israel is a hero in the story, but wait till chapter 21, they will thwart their own heroism. Um, and we will have to wait for that though, till next week when they do that. So let me close in prayer and then we can get into some discussion. Father, we thank you for, uh, your word, uh, particularly the, the hard texts that, um, cause us to wrestle and, uh, and question things. Um, they, they make us grow. Uh, they cause us to learn about you. Um, and you tell us that uh, all of your word is profitable for us in, in some, some way. Um, all scripture is breathed out by you. And so, Lord, I pray that as we, as we put our hand to the plow and we uh, study the, the, the text, these stories, um, that you would reward our efforts richly, um, that you would give us grace upon grace to understand and apply these words uh, to our own hearts. Um, and Lord, you would just be gracious to us as we try to walk out your mission, uh, even today in the church, uh, as imperfectly as we do that. Uh, Lord, we ask this in your name. Amen.